like to better understand the Bible? How can you grow as a Christian and find personal peace? What happens at the second coming of Jesus? What is the relevance of Bible prophecy today? How do you identify a cult? What happens when you die? Here is your opportunity to find answers to these and many other questions by exploring 30 not only relevant, but life-changing topics that await your discovery. Welcome to Search for Certainty. I'm your host today. My name's Gail Fong. We're so glad that you're joining us and uh, to study along today. And with me in the studio is Hannah Nakagawa. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you, Gail. Well, our topic today is a very, very important one, mm. and we pray that we'll give you a lot of hope. It's called God's love in the fires of hell. If you were God, would you delight in tormenting sinners in hell for millions and millions of years? Could you be truly happy in heaven if you knew an unsaved relative or friend was intensely suffering in the fires of hell at that very moment? Mm. How could a loving God burn sinners in hell for eternity? If God knows everything, wouldn't these suffering sinners be continually on his mind? Most of us would not want to torment our worst enemy that way. Is it logical that a loving God would keep his enemies in a continual state of suffering for eternity? Doesn't sound logical at all. Is hell a hot spot in the centre of the earth, some burning fiery chasm with millions crying out for deliverance right now? This is no small matter. The concept of an eternally burning hell has led many to reject God altogether. The Bible presents a clear answer for the question of God's love in the fires of hell. Before we begin, Hannah, would you open with prayer for us? Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible, the truth that you have given to us. Father, as we study your words, please fill us with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that um, you will guide us into the truth and help us, Lord, to understand your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to begin our study, we're going to look in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 in the New Testament. The question is, what is God's desire for every one of us? Mm. It says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, of our Savior, who desire all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm. So God wants every man, everyone to be saved and come to know the truth. He is truly a loving God. Yes. Let's also read Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Well, Hannah, so truly God is a God of love. That's right. He's very long-suffering, no willing that like, not even one person die. He wants all of us to be saved. Well, what does the prophet Isaiah call 
the destruction of the wicked in Isaiah 28 and verse 21. It says, For the Lord who rides up as at Mount Perazim, he would be angry as in a valley of Gibbon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. So, unusual act. Mm. Now, when ancient Israel rebelled against God, he allowed their enemies to destroy them. God withdrew his protecting power and allowed them to experience the result of their own choices. The destruction of Israel was God's strange act or Mm. unusual act, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading. God's final destruction of the wicked is not the result of God's anger. It is the result of the sinner's rebellion. It is called strange or unusual because the heart of a loving God longs to save. Well, where do the fires of hell originate? Let's go to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 29. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. So God is a consuming fire. We Mm. cannot stand in his presence as we are. Since our God is a consuming fire, the fires of hell that destroy the wicked originate in his righteous character. Hmm. God is a consuming fire to sin. When a sinner clings to sin, God becomes a consuming fire to that sinner. Well, where are both the righteous and the wicked rewarded? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Hannah? It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the reward of the meek is going to be the earth. Mm. Well, what about, what does the wise King Solomon write in Proverbs 11 and verse 31? Proverbs 11, verse 31, it says, If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? So it will be um, righteous and um, ungodly will be recompensed on the earth. On the earth. Thank mm. you, Hannah. Well, when do the wicked and the righteous receive their final rewards? Is hell a hot spot burning in the center of the earth now with the devil in charge? As some pictures depict. Second Peter chapter 2 Verses 4 and 9. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And verse 9 says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So there's a day of judgment. It Mm. hasn't arrived yet, Mm. but there is a day of judgment. Well, how completely will the fires of hell destroy the wicked? Will they burn throughout millions of years? Let's have a look at some Bible passages that summarize this. And we'll go to 
Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. What does the Bible say? It says, For behold, the, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Wow. So if the wicked are going to be a stubble, they're going to be completely burned, burned up. up. That's right. Um, let verse me read two. Verse yes. 2 and 3. It says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteous shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like store-fed cubs. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Mm. Mm, they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Completely Nothing. destroyed. Yeah, perishing. Wow. What about Psalm 37 and verse 10? How does David write about this in the psalm? What does the Bible say? It says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for this place, but it shall be no more. Mm. Twice it was repeated, it shall be no more. The Bible's saying the same thing. Hannah, what is written in the book of Job, in Job chapter 20 and verse 5? What does the Bible say? It says that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Though his um, hotness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. That's very clear, isn't it? Mm. They won't won't be found. They'll perish forever. Yeah. Won't be able to see him anymore. Mm. What about Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 25? What does the Bible say there? It says, When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Again, wicked is no more. That's very clear. Mm. What about Isaiah 47 and verse 14? How does the Bible read there? What does the Bible say? Isaiah 47 verse 14. 14. It says, Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a call to... Uh, to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. It's a complete destruction. There's so many passages in the Bible Mm. that are saying the same thing. Well, what does God call the destruction of the wicked in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46? 
It says, Jesus speaking, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So everlasting punishment. Mm. The destruction of the wicked is everlasting. Sinners do not remain alive in the fires of hell forever. God, in one act, destroys them forever. Mm. This is not everlasting punishing, punishing. Yeah. but punishment. Yeah, that's so true. This destruction never needs to be repeated. An everlasting punishment completely destroys. The wicked are not in a state of everlasting punishing mm. forever, as we have shared. So according to the Bible, how long does an eternal fire burn? What example does God give of two cities burned with eternal fire? Go to the book of Jude, just before Revelation. It's just one chapter. Yeah. So we just say Jude Seven. Seven. It says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to this, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Hmm. It says eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, they're not burning now. Mm. In fact, they were completely destroyed and some believe are under the Dead Sea. The eternal fire of the Bible is one that destroys so completely that it fully consumes. That makes sense. <laughs> How completely did the eternal fire that came from heaven destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? How does Peter put it in the Bible in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6? It says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Wow. It says, ashes, Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. It does. As they were just turned into ashes which, and they were destroyed forever. forever. The wicked will be completely destroyed never to live again, according to Scripture. Well, how does the prophet Jeremiah describe the fire that consumed Jerusalem? In the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 17 and verse 27, it says, But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as no carrying a burden when at entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, when I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. With an unquenchable fire. Mm. So Jerusalem was destroyed by an unquenchable fire that human hands could not put out. It totally destroyed Jerusalem. Mm. It was unquenchable, yet Jerusalem is not burning today. <laughs> An unquenchable fire is one that totally destroys. destroys. Mm. We're just letting the Bible interpret itself. Except, yes. Well, what happens to the wicked who are consumed in the fires of hell in Revelation 20 and verse 9? It says... They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
Mm, that's very destructive. Mm. Some Christians misunderstand the expression forever and ever. Would you read Revelation 20, the next verse, verse 10? Sure. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the uh, beast and the false prophets are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the Bible, the expression forever and ever does not mean endless existence. Mm. It literally means until the end of the age or the end of a given period. Mm. And we're just going to look at some examples, but here, here, here are some Bible examples of forever. If we turn to Exodus chapter 21 and verse 6. What does the Bible say there about a slave who was to serve his master? The Bible said, Then his master shall bring him to the judge, judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pe- uh, pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> as long as he had life, he That's was right. going to serve that master. Mm. Yeah, surely he cannot um, live or serve forever um, in a sense that's, you know, uh, eternal. Um, but it was meaning in his life. until His, his mortal life. Mm. Yes. Well, Hannah, also there's another verse we could look at in First Samuel chapter 1, verse 22 and 28, where this word forever is used to describe Samuel and his service in the temple. It says, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is wend, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Again. (laughs) So Samuel served in the temple, Forever mm. or as long as he lived. That's right. Oh, let me read verse 28. It says, Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. Mm, this verse is very clear. Yeah, very clear. <laughs> as long as he lives. So there's another verse in Scripture, Hannah, that we can also look at that uses the word forever. And that's in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 6. And Jonah, he had an experience in the belly of a great fish. How did he feel? How does the Bible express this in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 6? It says, I went down to the um, moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So here Jonah was in the belly of the whale and he felt it was forever. Forever. (laughs) I think... Well, it wasn't really a whale. It was a big fish, the Mm. Bible doesn't say, but Mm. this massive fish that swallowed him. I think I'd feel that way if I was inside (laughs) a fish's stomach as well. That's right. It must have been a horrendous experience. Mm. The Bible does not contradict itself. Mm. 
The wicked are consumed or totally devoured. They exist in the flames as long as they can live. Mm. A new age dawns when suffering and sorrow are no more. Amen. What is the ultimate fate of the earth in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13? It says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will have a new heavens and new earth that righteousness will dwell. God's going to make all things new, isn't yes. he? Well, will the flames of hell consume this planet forever, someone may ask? Or what will God finally do with sorrow, suffering and pain? Mm. What does the Bible say in Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5? And God will wipe away every tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is a very powerful promise yes, from the Lord. Yes, what promise is there shall be no more sorrow, no more death. And I like how he's going to make all things new. These words are true and faithful. And faithful. Well, will sin, Hannah, ever rise up again once God has done his strange act? Will sin ever rise up again? We go to the Old Testament. It's just a little book. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. The Bible says, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Oh, what a promise. There will be no more, no more affliction again. That's a powerful promise. Mm. I love that. What is the fate of Satan and his followers if affliction will not rise up a second time? We go to another little minor prophet book called in the Old Testament called Obadiah. It's just one chapter, so we say Obadiah 16. We've got a few verses to look up on this question. Yeah, Obadiah 16, it says, For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nation drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Whoa. Similar to what you read in the psalm before, hmm. uh, Psalm 37, about the wicked. They shall be no more. No more. Here they shall be as though they've never been. Wow. Praise the Lord. <laughs> What about Isaiah chapter 47 and verse 14? What does the Bible say in this passage? Sure. Isaiah 47 verse 14, it says, Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flames. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit there before. So that fire that hellfire, that final destruction of the wicked, that fire goes completely out. Mm. Amen. And there's one more passage we want to look at in the Old Testament. 
in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17 and 18, Hannah. Yes, it says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I lay you, laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devours you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So this is the chapter talking about um, Lucifer, the devil. And we know the end of him. It shall be no more ashes. Just getting me turned to ashes. Mm. That's that's going to be a day when the devil will not be around anymore. <sighs> Never again to mm. annoy and tempt and cause destruction. What is God's urgent appeal to all humanity? Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 32. It says... For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. A loving God longs for his children to turn to him for salvation. He does not want one person to be lost. Mm. He reaches out in tender mercy to save you today, to save me. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. Well, where will we spend eternity? Every man, woman and child must decide. There's only one sensible choice. Mm. Choose today to spend eternity with Christ, rejoicing in the new earth. So let's make that decision today. I choose to place my life in the hands of my loving Creator. It is clear to me that sin destroys and I long to be delivered from hell's complete destruction by my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn to the Lord and live. I pray that be your experience today, that you have hope. Well, let us close in prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you for teaching us through your word that Although you are a God of love, that sin cannot stand in your presence because you are a God of perfection, a God of pure and holy love. And although you allow us that freedom of choice, in the end, if we choose sin, it may destroy us. We would never be happy in heaven where all is holiness, purity, love and joy everlasting. But we thank you that there is hope in Jesus, that you have been to Calvary for us and that today we can make that choice to put our hand in the hand of our loving God and Saviour and that you will bring us through to victory and to eternal life. Today we're choosing Jesus. Bless every listener today. May you reveal yourself to them. May they see the love that you have for them and the wonderful hope in that earth made new, in the land where there'll be no more sickness, pain, sorrow, 
death and separation. But till then, we're looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, the one who keeps his promise, because you are true and faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We thank you for joining us today. We pray that you've been blessed by this Bible study. And I've really enjoyed studying with you today, Hannah, studying together. And we pray that you'll come and join us again. Until then, God bless you and go in peace. questions or comments about any of the programs you've heard, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. From Carly Fletcher's album, Follow the Lamb, this is Looking Unto Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Looking unto Jesus. Looking to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, let us run the race, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we are surrounded by a cloud of to Jesus Who for the joy set before him how Jesus endured the cross Despising the shame he now sits at the right hand of God Keep looking unto Jesus Keep looking unto Jesus Jesus
Fong's album, Through It All, this is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Unfaithful to him who has shown 
pushed deep such unbounded and infinite love who died to redeem us his own oh brother be faithful the city of gold prepared for the good and the blessed is waiting its portals of pearl to unfold and welcome thee into thy rest then brother prove faithful not long shall we stay in weariness here and forlorn time's dark night of sorrow is wearing away we haste to the glorious morn Oh, brother, be faithful, he soon will descend, creation's omnipotent king. While legions of angels his chariot attend, and palmries of victory bring. Oh, brother, be faithful, and soon shalt thou hear thy Savior pronounce the glad word. Well done, faithful servant, thy title is clear To enter the joy of thy Lord O brother, be faithful, eternity's years Shall tell for thy faithfulness now When bright smiles of gladness shall scatter thy tears A coronet gleam on thy brow O brother, be faithful, the promise is sure That waits for the faithful and try To reign with the ransomed, immortal and pure And ever with Jesus abide Fountain View Academy sang, O brother, be faithful Coming up next, the Clark family will sing he could never ask too much of me. He spoke as if he knew me, the woman told the crown. He told me things nobody knew, but he never put me down. We stood talking by the well, and I was so Somebody say But all I know is I was blind Till he touched my eyes that day And now I'm seeing all the things I've never seen before And I just want to tell you Now I'm following the Lord He could never ask too much of me 
anywhere he sends me, I will go there willingly, cause he could never ask too much of me. Answers to the Big Questions. I'm your host, Alan Sonta, and I'm glad you could join me. Our question today is, is there some purpose to the universe? In our last episode, we touched briefly on the issue of the origin of life, and I pointed out that most scientists believe the theory of evolution. If the theory of evolution were correct, then all life on the planet, and indeed in the whole universe, would be the result of random physical and chemical processes. Because this theory is so widely accepted, most people don't even think about whether there's any purpose behind the observable universe. Planet Earth and the uncountable myriads of stars that we see in the sky at night are, according to evolutionary theory, nothing more than the result of mindless combinations of atoms that were set in motion by a Big Bang sometime in the very distant past. And the Big Bang theory can't even explain why anything banged in the first place. So the logical conclusion of belief in the Big Bang and the theory of evolution is that the whole universe is totally without purpose. It has no reason for being. But as we've seen in the last episode of this series, the theory of evolution is simply without foundation. Indeed, it's impossible for all that we see around us to have evolved from nothing. We were created by God, and God is going to step in very soon to put right all that is wrong with this world of sin and death, with its pain, sorrow, suffering, and hopelessness. If God created the universe, it makes sense to ask ourselves, Why? What's the purpose for which God made the whole universe? And why did he create this earth and all living things on it? 
The answer to this question requires us to go right back to the beginning, when God first began to create. God himself has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. We cannot really understand a being who has no beginning, because in our minds, everything began at some time. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. To gain some idea about God and love, we need to understand what God says about it. He says that we are to love him with our whole being, and we need to love others in the same way as we love ourselves. He then goes on to give ten commands or rules for living that give substance to this love that he talks about. These ten commands are the basis for God's government. The first four commands are about worship. The first is that we worship only the Creator God and no other. The second is that we are not to make any image that purports to portray God. The third is that we do not speak or act in a way that demeans God's name. The fourth is that we observe the seventh day each week as a reminder that God created the earth in one week. The last six commands govern our relationships with other people. The fifth command tells us to honour our parents. The sixth forbids murder, the taking of human life. The seventh forbids sexual immorality, especially adultery. The eighth forbids stealing, the selfish taking of the property of others. The ninth forbids the giving of false testimony against another person. The tenth forbids the coveting of anything belonging to someone else, as this creates a state of mind that is selfish and unloving. God commands us to worship him because he is the infinite creator. He is the highest power in the universe. We all tend to become like the God we worship. So if we are to become the greatest beings possible, we must worship the creator God, because there is no one greater than he. To worship anyone or anything else is to degrade ourselves. Since God wants the best for us, he says to worship him alone. God also knows that there is no object or creature that can be made to depict the infinite God. So he forbids us to make any image to worship, because that image will degrade our concept of God. When he ruled the Hebrew nation in Moses' time, he appeared only as a bright cloud which had no form or substance that would enable the people to imagine what God looked like. We can never picture the infinite creator whom we worship. God also forbids the irreverent use of his name, because this also demeans him in our minds. Finally, the fourth commandment gives a continuing practice to remind us that God is our creator God. If every seventh day we stop doing the work that we usually do every day, then we are reminded of our God. God created us as beings who need to worship. God is not being proud when he asks us to worship him. He requires worship for our own good, to elevate our minds. If anyone else wants to be worshipped, it's a sign that they are proud and they're trying to be like God. Thus, it is rebellion against God for anyone else to ask to be worshipped. It's interesting to note that throughout history, all people and cultures have made something to worship. 
Only in our modern secular culture do we find people who claim that they don't worship any god, but in fact they have made a god of their science, as they believe science has the answer to all their problems. So in the Ten Commands, or Commandments as we usually call them, God has spelt out what love is, and these commandments are the basis of his government of the universe. By keeping these commandments, we create the greatest possible joy. When we look into the Bible, which is the account of how God created everything we see around us, and the story of what has happened since creation, we see that God had a purpose in all that he did. Ultimately, the purpose for which God created the universe was to make beings who could experience joy by loving and worshipping him and by loving and helping one another. As far as this world is concerned, God himself tells us in Isaiah 45 verse 18 that he made it to be inhabited and it was to be inhabited by beings who could love him as their creator and love one another. But there's another aspect of this issue that we need to consider. So at this point we need to take a look at something that came in and spoiled what God wanted to happen. Sometime after God created the angels in heaven, who he made to keep him company and bring joy to him and themselves, one of the leading angels, Lucifer, decided that he wanted to be as great as God himself. So he began to talk among the angels and spread the idea that angels did not need God's laws, as they were perfect beings who could decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. Lucifer suggested that he had a better form of government than God did. Under God's government, everyone was to love everyone else, as love was the motive behind everything that was done. In God's government, the angels experienced the greatest joy in helping and loving one another, not in looking after only themselves. God had built his universe on the principle that love was the most important motive. God made it clear that the ultimate purpose in life was to maximize joy, and this joy was the result of loving God and loving his laws and of loving and helping one another. Lucifer's form of government put self first. He said that if we look after ourselves, we will experience more joy than if we help others. These two forms of government were the opposite of each other, and Lucifer invited the angels to follow him instead of God. By his clever arguments, Lucifer persuaded one-third of the angels in heaven to follow him, and he openly rebelled against God. It seems that this rebellion came about soon after God had created the planet Earth, and Lucifer, whose name was changed when he rebelled against God, became known as Satan. Satan decided that he would try to get Adam and Eve, the two humans God had created on Earth, to join him in rebelling against God. Because God uses only love as a motivation, he didn't force Adam and Eve to obey him, but gave them a test to see whether they would choose his government or Satan's. He put a certain fruit tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, which he made to be the home of Adam and Eve, and he told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of that tree. He told them that if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. He also warned them that Satan would try to deceive them into obeying him and eating the fruit of that tree. 
Satan made himself look like a beautiful serpent and took his position in that tree. When Eve came near the tree, he spoke to her and told her that if she ate the fruit, she would not die. Eve believed the serpent, Satan, and ate the fruit. She then took some of the fruit to Adam and gave it to him, and he ate it too. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit, God sent them out of the garden and put angels in place to stop them getting back in and eating of another tree, the tree of life, that would have kept them alive. So, because they had disobeyed God and eaten the fruit he told them not to, they were kept away from the tree of life, so they eventually died. It wasn't long before Adam and Eve realized that Satan had lied to them and that they were going to die. They confessed their sin to God and he put a plan in place that would make it possible for them to be saved from death. The plan, called the plan of salvation, had been worked out by God before humans sinned because God knows everything even before it happens. And by this plan, God himself, in the person of his son, Jesus, would come down to this earth and live among humans. He would then die so that everyone who wanted to be saved from eternal death could be forgiven their sins and accepted back into God's new kingdom, which would begin when Jesus came back to earth the second time to put an end to Satan's rebellion. Now let us return to the issue of purpose. God's purpose now is to put an end to Satan's rebellion, but to do it in such a way that the whole universe will see that he is loving and good, and will not fear him, but love him. God has existed from eternity in the past and will exist to eternity in the future, and he has set aside a period of time during which he will deal with the rebellion of Satan in such a way that rebellion will never again occur through all eternity. To accomplish this, he set in motion the plan of salvation, to save those humans on earth who want to be on God's side in the war between God and Satan. I've already explained something of this plan. The Bible explains all this, how Jesus came to die in our place so we can be saved. Then Jesus is coming back to this earth as a king to get those who are waiting for him to take them to heaven. Those who have died while waiting will be resurrected to go with him to heaven. Those who have rejected God's salvation but are still alive at his coming will be killed by the events at that time. Then for a thousand years, Satan and his angels will be confined to this earth, which has been destroyed by earthquakes and fires at the second coming of Jesus. During this thousand-year period, God will hold a detailed inquiry into the lives of all who have rejected his offer of salvation, and at the end of that time, the whole universe will agree that God is just in destroying the rebels who have caused so much trouble in the universe, particularly on this earth. Then God will bring his new Jerusalem, the holy city, which is now in heaven, together with all those who have spent the thousand years there with him and return to this earth to bring the whole episode of rebellion to a final end. At that time, all those who have rejected salvation will be brought back to life, and together with Satan and his angels, they will try to attack the holy city. But God will totally destroy all who have persisted in rebellion in a lake of fire 
that will burn up every trace of sin and rebellion. After that fire has burned out, God will recreate the earth in its former beauty and will set up his government on this earth made new. You can see that the purpose of God's activity now is to get rid of rebellion and sin. But once that has been accomplished at the end of this 7,000-year experiment with Satan's alternative government, God will return to his long-term purpose for the universe, and that is to maximize joy and love. The Bible has over 180 references to the fact that God wants us to be joyful. Can you imagine what it would be like to live forever if you were suffering pain? It would be unimaginably terrible. But of course, in God's new earth, there will be no pain. Only utter joy and happiness all the time. What a wonderful world that will be. So to sum up the answer to today's question, is there some purpose to the universe? The answer is definitely yes. The purpose to the universe is for all living creatures to experience the most possible joy by worshipping the Creator and loving one another, helping one another and enjoying the wonderful new earth that God will recreate from the ruin of this old earth we are now living in. And in that new earth, there is the tree of life from which we can all eat and we will live joyfully forever. What a wonderful purpose God has for us all. Don't you want to be part of that new world where there's no pain, no sorrow, no crying, and where there's no more death? You can be part of this new world if you accept the free salvation offered by Jesus. He is waiting to accept you as one of his children right now. So you will be ready to meet him when he returns to the earth soon to take his people to be with him. If you have any questions or would like to know more of God's great plan of salvation, you can contact 3ABN for more information. You've been listening to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm Alan Sonter, and I hope you can join me again next time. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.